You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, this is Lanyap Podcast. Doug and Greg Stokes, no guests this week. It is October now, October the 3rd. We're recording this, so this will release in six or seven days. September was not good. I don't think there's any better way to put it. The S&P 500 was down 9.2% in September. Interest rates increased. The big component to the last month was just a surprise print in inflation earlier in the month in which inflation came in a little bit hotter than was expected and all the fear around increased rates by the Federal Reserve, currency crises, etc. I'll just lead this off with a simple question. Is there any reason to be bullish? I think to answer your question, no. (laughs) And I think that that in and of itself is a reason to be bullish. I think if you look at consumer confidence is at historic lows right now, the markets are off 25% or something like that year to date before today. Today was finally a good day. The last two weeks before that was one of the worst two-week stretches that we've had in the history of the markets. We've had all kinds of unprecedented things that have happened. I mean, we talked about it a month or two ago when the markets had bottomed in June and then recovered in August. It would have been historically unprecedented for the markets to break through that prior resistance level, the prior bottom in June. But lo and behold, they did break through that resistance level. Ukraine and Russia is another reason to be bearish. The Great Britain pound got really close to trading at parity with the dollar. The euro is less expensive now than the dollar. Basically, everything looks horrible internationally, domestically. Mortgage rates are like 7% now. It's going to just kill the housing market. You got to assume that people just can't afford to make mortgage payments when they're at those levels. And people refer to the fact that mortgage rates when you know people that are in their 50s and 60s, mortgage rates were at the 7% or higher or whatever. But the issue is that housing prices are at their historic highs. So the median mortgage payment is like 50% or something like that of the income of a median American's salary. So anyway, there's just all kinds of horrible things happening right now. But usually in the investment landscape, it's the sort of the darkest before the dawn. And there are all kinds of positive things like prognosticators that are very bearish, typically, that are coming out and beating their chests. People that were very bullish and promoting sort of like Ponzi scheme like cryptocurrencies, the hammer is starting to fall on them. Retail investors are very bearish, which is usually a positive signal. And then just in general, things typically, like I said, are darkest before the dawn. And the markets typically recover before you start to see a response in the economy. So just by virtue of things being so bearish right now, I think that's a bullish signal. What's your take on that, Doug? Yeah, so here's the data. S&P 500 got down to down 25% last week. So the last week of September, Ben Carlson, who we always quote on this, but he posted something yesterday, October the 2nd, saying getting long-term bullish it uh, goes through a, f- a bunch of reasons why, but the, the bottom line is this. He goes through the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, and the NASDAQ. The percent decline of 25% or greater, this one's S&P 500 since 1950. There's been 
like nine or so periods of 25% or worse declines. The average decline was 37%. And then the one, three, five, and 10-year returns on average after those declines of 25% or more, one year positive 21%, three years positive 36.9%, five years positive 83%, 10 years positive 200%. NASDAQ, down 30% or more, there's been, let's call it nine of those periods since 1971, the average declined 44%. We're down 34% so far this year. Same story, positive 24% one year later, and it goes on on average positive 400% after 10 years. Russell 2000, which is small caps, average decline of negative 41%. There's been seven of these since 1979. We're down 31.9% through the end of the quarter. Average return over one year, 32.8%, out to 10 years, 228%. So it comes back to this. When things are so bearish, when markets decline so much, what else could be out there that is a surprise? I think if you're everybody's looking for a reason to be bearish because it's easy to be bearish at this point, and the people that are rewarded are the people that are bullish when everybody else is bearish. I think another interesting point to really nailed ahead on this particular one is somebody was tweeting just a random tweet over the weekend that a major bank is at the verge of insolvency. This led a bunch of speculation that Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank are on the verge of you know bankruptcy, another Lehman moment, flashback to 2008. Who knows if that's true or not, but the idea that there's just one tweet leads to this frenzy of negativity. Everybody's searching for that particular reason to get the next leg down in the market. So who knows what's going to happen in the next quarter or two. But as you said, it's always darkest before the dawn and it seems pretty dark these days. Yeah. I saw that Credit Suisse rumor mill over the weekend as well, too. I found that so interesting. Somebody with a bunch of followers on Twitter said that he had heard through the grapevine that there was liquidity issues at a major investment bank. And that started off this rumor mill. And it's interesting to see that Credit Suisse was down like pre-market 10% or something like that, but actually finished positive on the day. I think we quote these corny investment quotes from, from history, but this is from Ben Graham, who's Warren Buffett's mentor. He said, in the short term, the markets are a voting machine and in the long term, they're a weighing machine. So right now, voting, just people's general sentiment is voting the price of shares down. But over the long term, earnings and efficiency, profitability, et cetera, has tended to improve. And the weighing of those earnings has resulted in a higher share price. This is something that I found as well, too, on Twitter. This is from George Maurodas at Chicago Advisor. He posted, can have long-term gains without declines along the way. And this is the growth of the U.S. stock market, growth of $10,000 from the 1950s till present. And it shows $10,000 invested in the 1950s with dividends reinvested along the way is now worth around $2.2 million or something like that. And it shows the percent below previous all-time high as related to that long-term machine that's grown over the last 50 or 60 years. In order to get that exponential growth in your money, you've had to grind through so many difficult periods. And here we are again, 
but there's a range of probabilities that exists in anything. And nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. We could be at the outset of a nuclear era with Ukraine. That's a probability. I think that's a low probability, but anything can happen. But I think the greater probability is for something like what's transpired in the past, which is markets climb that wall of worry and continue to compound out. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. The last three years has been absolutely brutal from a volatility standpoint. I saw a chart recently as well, too, that showed the 5% or more declines by the NASDAQ from 2012 till 2019, which is just about the time that Doug and I started practicing in this profession. 2012 to 2019, the NASDAQ was down like only one time more than 5%. And in the last two or three years, through COVID and through this last period, the NASDAQ has been down 5% or more like 11 times. It's just been an absolutely brutal, volatile period of time. But my bet over the long term is that the president continues to operate as it has historically, and that we look back on these periods as buying opportunities rather than something to join the crowd, join the, the voting machine. You should typically, when people are selling, is the right time to be buying. That's really just the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I think everything looks easy on a chart. And it's easy to look at that chart and say, yeah, that's 70 years of compound growth on a $10,000 investment. But I've got a need next year or the year after that. And what should I be doing then? And it's really difficult to make those sort of buy decisions when there's just so much uncertainty in the world, when the range of outcomes is so wide. I think that just comes down to you know, prudent portfolio and cash flow management. And we've talked about this previously and sort of beaten a dead horse at this point. But the exciting thing about the market that we're in is obviously you can get excited as a young person about a buying opportunity. If you're dollar cost averaging into your 401k plan, great. Your dollar cost averaging into lower and lower prices, that should help with accumulation of more and more wealth over time. But if you're reaching a retirement age, the exciting component to your portfolio now is the fact that you can earn some interest on the bond side. I agree 100%. I think it's such a understated component in today's markets when a year ago we were buying bonds or at least the market was offering bonds at you had to go out 15 years to get 2%. At COVID the interest the 10-year treasury got almost to zero. I think it was like 30 basis points was the yeah, the low. The 10-year treasury in September touched 4%. Two-year treasury yields at 4.25 still. I bought some today in client portfolios. And to imagine that if you have a long-term estimated return or required return in a portfolio of you know, 5 or 6% to meet spending needs, think about that from the perspective of a retiree or a pension or endowment that has a mandatory distribution requirement, foundation, et cetera. Getting that sort of yield in a government-guaranteed environment is a game-changer. And that's something that should be viewed as a positive in today's market. Also, if you love to travel to Europe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like the pound in, I don't know if it was, but it was like 10 years ago or something like that was you had to spend a dollar fifty to get one pound, Great Britain pound. Now you only have to spend a dollar. I mean, this goes to show you too, like how fortunate we are to be Americans. These other countries and currencies are just getting absolutely hammered. I saw something today that the UN made a plea to the US Federal Reserve to chill out on their 
rate raising regime because it was messing with all these other countries from the standpoint of them being able to manage their currencies. But the issue from an international standpoint is the vast majority of international trade is done in U.S. dollars, and they're having to convert their currencies to U.S. dollars, and it's really pricing the dollar much higher. But yeah, we're very fortunate to be situated where we are, and also energy independence as well, too. We're just very lucky to be Americans in this situation and have two oceans separating us from bad guys as well, too. But that's also priced in as well. J.P. Morgan does this on a daily basis. They have something called their guide to the markets, and I look at it pretty routinely. But one of their metrics is just simply valuation. And you know what is the relative valuation of U.S. versus international equities, for example? And I went and looked at that this morning, and we can post this at some point. But the valuation gap between U.S. and international stocks is just insanely high. I'm going to pull this up while we're talking. But the S&P 500 on a forward-looking basis now, operating earnings can change, which means that earnings per share could go down. It's probably likely to happen, especially if we're in a recession. But forward S&P 500's price-to-earnings ratio is 15.4 times as of the end of September, which is below its historic average. For example, the all-country world index, excluding the U.S., is at 10.8 times price-to-earnings ratio. So S&P is at 15. International markets are at 10 times. That's two standard deviations, which is a big number, below its historical average. Historically, the international markets traded about a 14% discount to the S&P 500. Now they traded a 30% discount. So yes, I mean, we are lucky to be Americans. We're lucky to have the global reserve currency. We're lucky to be energy independent. And we're lucky to not have a war happening on our continent currently. But markets are also pricing that in as well. I mean, you can look at the same sort of stuff in, in the emerging markets where U.S., and especially the dollar strength, is really hurting returns for local companies and priced in local currencies in emerging markets. But you have to view from a portfolio, you can say, okay, let's just own all U.S. And there's a pretty reasonable argument to make that that sort of portfolio decision, especially after the last 15 years, the S&P 500 has just outperformed dramatically international markets. But if you just go back and look at the data, you can say, mm, maybe it's priced in at this point. Maybe international is not so bad. 10 times earnings versus 15 is a pretty big valuation gap. And that at least is interesting to me. I think it's super interesting, especially if you look at emerging markets where they have huge demographic advantages to the United States. Obviously, like we had Santiago Solonet on the podcast and talked about his experience in Argentina. And that's just a completely wild continent in South America where there's all kinds of price setting and corruption, et cetera. Brazil just had elections over the weekend and then the Latin American markets were up as a result of that. But yeah, eventually you've got to figure that humanity tends to progress in a fashion that it's like, for example, poverty is at historic lows right now, hopefully from a human standpoint, but also from an investment standpoint, that those countries progress towards the same standards that the United States promulgates and propones. And if so, then you would conceivably want to be buying when prices are at discounted 
levels to the United States. And when the underlying economies have so much more runway than the United States, if they get things together, they act together politically. I saw an interesting statistic on Alibaba, for example, in China, they IPO'd like five years ago and their revenues are like 10 times what they were when they IPO'd and their stock price is basically, I think it's down or flat or something like that since then. So there's just so much negativity associated with international. And if there's just a slight improvement in the way that these countries operate, then it could be a home run from an investment standpoint. It could also be a situation where you've got human nature, that the other side of human nature prevails, where you've got greed that these political parties and, and kleptocracies, et cetera, want to continue to control and oppress the public and companies to try to keep themselves in control. So just from an investment standpoint, if you can find those, those areas that you're buying value and things do improve, you can make a lot of money. What do you think is going to happen to the housing market? There's two sides of this. You've got, fortunately, I think there's like 95% of mortgages in the United States are fixed or something yeah, like that. We, we like talked a, about that a few episodes back. Yeah. Yeah. Fixed and long dated. And long dated. On the yeah. other side of the equation, like this is why things could be horrible in the United Kingdom, for example, and in Europe, because the majority of their loans are floating rate. Yeah. So you've got people that their monthly notes are going to go up tremendously, whereas in the United States, that's not going to happen. And the other thing in the United States is the lending standards have improved dramatically since 2008, 2009, global financial crisis. One of the big factors in that was that people were borrowing money with basically horrible credit. There's stories of like strippers with six loans, mortgage loans, et cetera. So the existing mortgage rates are really low and long dated. And the quality of the people that have them from an income standpoint is very high. On the other hand, new home purchases, like the idea of borrowing money at 7% to buy a home, that's what I talked about at the beginning of the episode. That's like the median home price, median note at 7% would be 50% of the median American's income. What my take on this is people just can't afford that if you look at it in general. My take on it is, is that it's going to really just slow down people moving. There's going to be probably a boom in remodeling because people are not going to want to move. People are not going to want to give up that loan. I certainly don't want to give up my mortgage and move somewhere. What I would be able to afford would be tremendously less than what I have presently. I think that's going to be a major ramification. And then the other thing is presumably house prices have to come down if those rates stay where they are. And you're starting to see that already. Like August was the first month or something like that, that we had or the biggest decline in month-over-month home prices since 2009. So I think those are going to be the two things at play. Number one, there's going to be less people moving because they have this golden handcuff concept with mortgage rates being so low on their current mortgage. There's probably going to be a remodeling boom because people are still going to need to have more space for their family expands or circumstances or whatever. But I think also there's a potential for home prices to correct to a degree to reflect the fact that interest rates are so high. I also think there's there's a reasonable probability that interest rates, long-term, like mortgage interest rates don't stay where they are for a long period of time, that this may be something that is a short-term spike. And if that's the case, then I think home prices under that circumstance could not be affected as much as if the high rates stick around for a while, because people would simply just presumably refinance and go along their merry way refinance out of that 7% rate into something more manageable. Yeah. I just think it's going to be, well, here's the counter argument to that. I, I agree with 80% of what you said. The counter is 
really, let's say it's twofold. Number one, this is from JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, another slide. Household debt service ratio, so percent of, we talked about this earlier this year when we were talking about the value of homes increasing dramatically last year. But still, as of the end of the second quarter, the percent of disposable income that goes to pay debt is 9.5%. That's as of June 30th. Fourth quarter of 2007, before the wheels fell off in the financial crisis, was 13.2%. So almost four percentage points higher. It's still at historic lows today. In the first quarter of 1980, it was 10.6%. From 2010 to 2019, it was close to around 10%. And then it got down to below 9% during COVID because of all the low interest rates and the money that was pumped into the economy. It's just coming back to that normal trend from 2010 to 2019. So wages are way up, income's way up. Of course, mortgage rates are up as well, but we're still from a debt service ratio below historic averages. Doesn't mean I want to go out and get a 7% mortgage. But what could happen is that there's no inventory because nobody wants to sell their house and give up that long fixed rate mortgage that they have. And so prices don't really adjust lower because the people that are in the market to buy a house understand that where mortgage rates are and there's no real inventory. Maybe it's just a lot of people competing for a small number of houses until, you know, my base case here is that the Federal Reserve is going to have to act or pivot sometime in the near future just because the economic wheels are going negative. And so I agree. At some point when they pivot, you would have to imagine that mortgage rates come back down and maybe that's when inventories rise. But yeah, I agree, Doug. Did you see Brinker's article Yeah, this week or for this month? Mm-hmm. So Doug and I follow Bob Brinker. We subscribe to his newsletter it's produced on a monthly basis. But anyway, it's really full of solid data. It's very technical. But one of the things that he pointed out was the Fed looks at inflation on a year-over-year basis. And right now, inflation is at 8.3% or something like that from August 2022 till over August 2021. But the rate at which inflation is increasing on a month-over-month basis is really slowing down. And so it's Brinker's take Brinker had a radio show on for like 30 years talking about the technicalities in the market. But what what he said in his piece was that if you look at the year-over-year inflation numbers, are probably not going to look that great. But if you look at it on a month-over-month basis, including over a six-month basis, it's going to be pretty close to the Fed's target on a six-month basis. It's probably going to be close to 2%. So it's his instincts that the Fed's probably going to look at that and slow down their pace of rate increases in what Doug just referred to as a pivot. Right now, they've been very hawkish. They can either be hawkish or dovish is the sort of terms of art. Hawkish means that they're in a punitive mode trying to slow down the economy. Dovish means that they're trying to be supportive of the economy. It's Bob Brinker's view from the Market Timers October 2022 article that they're going to look at the data and see that things are really slowing down and they may not be as hawkish as they previously were signaling to the markets. And that sort of sentiment may be what drove the market higher today. I mean, it's been an absolutely brutal two weeks, nine months that we're through this year, really stocks and bonds together. 
But at some point, if the data indicates that the economy is slowing down more than the Fed wants to, I think the base case is that they pivot towards something that's a little bit more dovish, not dovish, but less hawkish at least. Yeah. I think that if you look at what they were doing in July when inflation numbers came out softer than expected and they started to be more accommodative, Powell's speech was quoted as dovish during late July. There was a major rebound in markets and I'm not sure that that was what they were hoping to achieve more asset growth. So sort of that that fine needle of making sure you don't crash the economy and also making sure that if you're less hawkish, that asset prices and inflation doesn't continue to rip higher. And so those are two opposite ends of the spectrum and they're trying to they're trying to thread the needle on that. Who knows what will happen? The way that I think about it, it doesn't really matter. Interest rates are up, so your cash flow from your fixed income is higher, and stock prices are down, so your expected returns on stocks are higher than they were nine months ago because valuations are lower. And take that and look forward and don't look backwards. Absolutely. So shifting gears, Doug, did you watch that Saints game in London on Sunday? Yeah. I'm so tired of referees screwing over the Saints. Yeah. I mean, I don't know... I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means. I believe in fairer and free markets, et cetera. But having watched the Saints for you know several decades now, it just seems like that there's clear bias against our team from the referee standpoint. I'm sure every single fan for every single team says the same exact thing. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if you go back to like the NFC Championship game when there was a clear pass interference penalty that never got called and the Rams ended up winning that game to yesterday when Tyron Matthew got called for a penalty that was clearly not a penalty. Plus, it seemed like it was like a ticky-tacky type of penalty, even if it was a penalty in that situation. Right. And it's close game. So it was third and 10, a decisive play. They had to be looking for something like that, essentially. Right. So anyway, my answer is I'm moving on to college football. Yeah. The takeaway from that situation is that Dalton looks pretty good. Danny Dalton, the Saints quarterback, and also Will Lutz, unbelievable. Like he made one 60 yarder and almost made another 61 yarder, which is just, I mean, we've, so I came away from that more positively than the first couple of games we played. But yeah, I'm not feeling good about the season tickets that I bought before this year. But right. I think that there's also (laughs) going to be some regret from uh, the front office for trading away our first round pick. Right. But it goes to show you that we were very spoiled for 15 years or whatever with Breeze. It's a moment in time that you have a Hall of Fame quarterback, and that really dictates your whole season. Yeah. And now that we have these kind of journeyman guys, it's going to be tough sledding. I'll tell you what is nice, though. The weather has gotten amazing. And we went Saturday, we watched college football outside for like four or five hours, and it was just unbelievable. Yesterday... Now, I have a sick kid, so yesterday we didn't do much, but it's just been super nice here in New Orleans. Yeah, I agree. We went to Pizza Delicious in the Bywater yesterday for dinner and went to the river. New Orleans, when it's beautiful outside, is really one of the best places, in my opinion. We're not quite through hurricane season yet. We've got about another six or seven weeks, but statistically, these are slower months. Six weeks? Six weeks, yeah. November 30th is the end of uh, hurricane season. Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) But no, the way the weather patterns work, the trend is is that if you get through September, usually you're good. 
But anyway, if we get through this year without a hurricane, anyway, I've really enjoyed New Orleans the last several weeks getting into fall. The weather's great. It's a fun place to be. And I love football as well, too. TCU won this weekend. That was awesome. College game day. We're doing college game day next week. We play Kansas. Yeah, at Kansas, 17 versus 19, 11 a.m. We're number 19 now? We're 17. We're 17. Wow. All right. Awesome. I can't wait. We got Dalton as the Saints quarterback who's a TCU frog, and TCU's 5 and 0. So it's good to be a TCU fan this year. Amen. All right. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining us. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends, family, colleagues. Give five stars. And we hope you guys come back to join us again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.